This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today, we're taking a little break from films. We're going to read an essay from 1993 by Wendy Brown called Wounded Attachments. It first appeared in the academic journal Political Theory. I'll kick us off. In Wounded Attachments, Wendy Brown suggests that identity politics is a consequence of the collapse of class consciousness over the course of the 80s. Without class consciousness, capitalism is renaturalized. The resentments it creates are no longer visible, but they are still felt. Unable to express themselves through economic critique, these feelings are expressed in the cultural realm. Identity groups are not able to demand an alternative to capitalism, so instead they demand access to the middle-class life they associate with the white man. She then discusses Foucault, arguing that Foucault equated resistance to power with the desire for freedom, when in point of fact, resistance often has other purposes that are antagonistic to freedom. Identity groups need it to remain the case that they are excluded from the white male middle-class experience, because this exclusion is what constitutes them as identity groups. Their resistance must therefore find some way of reproducing the thing that they ostensibly resist. The identity groups therefore make a point to naturalize and decentralize themselves. Gender, race, and sexuality are treated not as constructs, but as fundamental categories, categories that have existed in all times and in all places. It must be insisted that they will always be relevant, and no amount of accession to the middle-class life can be said to diminish this in any way. This is accomplished by getting these identity categories inscribed into the law and into the rules by which bureaucratic structures operate. Brown argues that subjects resent the fact that their freedom is always circumscribed by the impersonal bureaucratic structures that are characteristic of the modern capitalist state. This situation is made worse by globalization, by the erosion of civil society, and so on. But instead of seeking liberation from this situation, and thereby abolishing the conditions that give rise to their identities, they seek someone to blame. They alight upon the middle-class white male and pursue revenge against this object of blame. Suffering and victimhood become ways of distancing oneself from the middle-class white male experience and therefore from the condition of deserving blame and vengeance. The more powerful you are, the less powerful you are able to appear. She also suggests that we are excessively aware of history and aware of the way in which history constitutes us. Where previous generations looked to history for inspiring progress narratives that promise better futures, we now look to history as a bleak force that accounts for the ways in which we have been constituted by systems of power that have always been present and which, going forward, can only be reproduced in new forms. In this context, history appears as an obstacle to liberation, and therefore radicals become obsessed with diminishing its importance and its effects. But history's effects are myriad, and this project never succeeds, producing only more resentment and more desire for revenge. She writes, The past cannot be redeemed unless the identity ceases to be invested in it, and it cannot cease to be invested in it without giving up its identity as such, thus giving up its economy of avenging and at the same time perpetuating its hurt. When he then stills the pain of the wound, 
he at the same time reinfects the wound. That last bit is a quote from Nietzsche's genealogy of morals. Nietzsche's influence is all over this work, exercising an especially strong hold on Brown's understanding of resentment. There are other ways of thinking about that term. It can be defined more broadly to include other kinds of politics apart from identity politics. And some political theorists have argued that resentment need not terminate exclusively in revenge, that it can sometimes be politically generative when leveraged by well-run organizations. But part of the point here is that the organizations that once did this work have withered away. And so there is no longer any constructive outlet for resentment in, say, an authentic class politics, as there might have been in the 1970s and earlier. Brown considers two possible ways out of this. First, she considers the possibility that we might try to forget history. If we no longer remember what the past did to us, its effects on us are not as pronounced. But she quickly abandons this strategy on the grounds that it is cruel and that many identity groups themselves leverage the idea that their grievances have been deliberately papered over and excluded from public discussion. Instead, Brown suggests we might not think about what we are, but about what we want. By replacing identification with claims about what we desire to have or to become, we reopen the possibility of moving somewhere new. But Brown does not go into detail about how to bring about this reframing. Resentment produces identity politics and revenge seeking in large part because class consciousness has collapsed and an organizational vacuum has opened up. In the decades following the publication of this article in 1993, this problem only worsened. Class consciousness further eroded and effective organizations further declined. Brown writes that opposition to identity politics is ahistorical or utopian. But if identity politics is the symptom of the closing up of political possibility, as Brown suggests, it is not obvious how identity politics could generate the possibilities, the absence of which fuel it in the first instance. Reading this article 30 years later only invites despair. If it is really the case that identity politics is the only thing on the menu, we now know from experience that this means there is no possibility of meaningful change. The only political response is to expand the menu but we seem to suffer from a very serious problem of imagination at the moment. There are a thousand quixotic fantasies of reviving political movements that belong to historical conditions that are long gone, none of which can win broad support. These refusals of identity politics themselves become identities, ways of adopting the posture of the hipster who is too cool to play the stupid game everyone else is playing, but too lacking in awareness to realize that defining oneself against the game is itself a way of playing. I finish this article very frustrated with its conclusion and with the lack of potential in it. Anyway, let's see what Helen thinks. Yeah, I thought this was interesting just because it was it is from 30 years ago and it's addressing the sort of the same questions that have been around for a long time. And in fact, it's very critical of where um, the theory on this stuff well, it's critical of where it was, but it's only got worse. <laughs> you know? um, so, and it's interesting because, like, this is a critique. Thirty years, like, the critiques of the issues at hand were already happening thirty years ago from the people who potentially are seen now as like the grandparents of the issues. <laughs> so, it's just, it's really quite, quite interesting. And it's, I mean, I do feel that. Um, 
so many of the questions. So, okay, in a sense that the perpetual questioning of things I have no problem with. And, and the issue for me is not the questioning, but the attempted locking down answer of the question in this sort of like totalitarian absolutes. But this questioning was already happening in a correct way years ago. It's interesting. And as Benjamin points out that like it's especially reading in retrospect, it's like very, very sobering and um, horrifying almost because it's like, is this where it leads? But the fact is that the, the correct questions here are being asked. I do actually think that there is potential in what's being said. But the fact is, the thing that it's critiquing identity politics is the thing that's just replaced all politics. And I think where the, this kind of theory is correct in its focus on desire is to show that we are all lacking subjects and the political is in the we precisely because the universal is like not a thing. And as soon as you attempt to claim a thing in your identity, you are not doing the we. Politics is not personal, it's interpersonal. It has to happen in terms of um, what we all share, which is what we don't share. Politics happens as soon as there's two people in a group and there is an acknowledgement that because we are all lacking, because of the lack we desire, and we desire in different ways. How do we manage these different desires given the fact that we're living in the same space? But the fact of acknowledging desire, if you analyze it back, it shows that we are all equal in our identity because we lack. And the focus of identity politics is to reify identity and absolutely do away with the we and focus on the I. So um, and what I'm going to do, um, I mean, it is interesting as well that like, as as we've said, like this stuff was said, all all the good stuff in queer theory was essentially said in the eighties and nineties, and instead of developing it in a sort of non capitalist, interesting philosophical way, it's been totally commoditized. And this is something always when you think like, oh, this is gonna, this is a an anti capitalist point. Da, da da da. There's always a utopian dynamic in it that will be like capitalized upon by the market if there is any like flicker of any possibility of like some utopian answer. And it just kind of goes to show that like the, the universities is like real kind of in industry having to produce more and more kind of content and ideas, but always, you know, underscoring the um, engine that fuels the university, which is basically the market. Um, so what I am going to do is talk about um, just some quotes in particular. Um, and yeah, this I and the we, I find really fascinating. It's almost like this essay is saying that, and I agree with it, is that as soon as you, it, so capitalism will encourage, so capitalism makes us feel, you know, anxious and um, alienated. And this leads us to desire to lock down identity. I mean, potentially this is why this movement towards identity politics has got even worse because as Benjamin points out, like class politics was done away with, which meant, which means that like, there's nothing, there's no um, buttress to capitalism. Capitalism gets worse. We feel more alienated. We feel more lacking. You know, the rise of social media paints all others as um, sort of celebrity, whole and complete subjects, uncastrated. We feel more castrated. Therefore, we seek something to stabilize our identity, which is identity itself. So that might be why materially, um, things have got worse after this, even though this was sort of pointing out where the problem lies in, in, in identity politics. But so this sort of impulse to identify as the outsider or 
the person who's not included and therefore potentially the emancipatory subject, like we all want to be the emancipatory subject who can see the system for what it is from our privileged position of the outsider. But, you know, as if we're sort of like, all, we want to be the bastard child, the exception of capitalism. Um, so we can teach everybody else in capitalism a thing or two about capitalism. But the thing is, it's like, this is like completely the wrong way to see capitalism. It's like, actually, there is no legitimate child of capitalism. Everybody is an outsider. And the lie of capitalism is to convince us that there is somebody on the inside, there is somebody whose desires are being met and fulfilled by capitalism. But if that were the case, capitalism wouldn't exist. It would cease to exist because it's kind of does, done its job of fulfilling desire. It keeps going because it doesn't fulfill desire because this lack cannot be complete at all. So it's in acknowledging the fact that we desire that we can only um, enjoy, as in enjoy the process of not having what we desire, um, because we can never get what we desire. Um, and this sort of might be able to kind of upend that kind of logic. But it's interesting how we always, precisely because we don't desire, we don't, we can never get our desires filled. We identify so strongly, because this is an extremely traumatic thing to acknowledge, which is the fact that there is no point to existence. There is no like there, there. We are basically, you know, um, inappropriate beings living in an inhospitable environment and this is in, it, like created divided subjects you have children and then they um create divided subjects because they aren't able to meet their desires and basically it's 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 the not there that creates the meaning that creates the sense of um creates speech and thought and the possibility for us to be sense-making beings but there's no the only sense is the no sense um but yeah i'll just talk about a couple of quotes so um First of all, uh, what are the particular constituents specific of our time, yet roughly generic for a device, diverse spectrum of identities, of identities desire for recognition that can seem as often to breed a politics of recrimination and rancor, of culturally dispersed paralysis and suffering, a tendency to reproach power than aspire to it, to disdain freedom rather than to practice it. I mean, this Benjamin points out this is sort of as a result of the fact that there's no class politics class politics obviously being kind of the opposite of identity, class politics, um, being a uh, happens when the subject acknowledges that the prom so class politics or kind of unionist kind of like um sabotage of the supply chain politics only happens at the point where the subject acknowledges that they are not going to the promise of capitalism is not going to fulfill them so they don't give up the power they have over saying no for the promise of um sacrificing what they desire now when desire what they desire now um is so unmet as to have like then basic needs unmet so they have to give up their desire for actual need um and it's actually the sort of a future investment in the promise of capitalism that prevents you that you sort of sell off the now for the promise to continue to invest and you can only take action in a strike when you've given up the promise um, of you know promotion of being liked by your corporation or that things that your your actually future desires are going to be met because your needs are so are so strong. Um, then again, you know she talks a lot about Rizzonti more in a Nietzschean sense. So the wounded character of politicized identities desire, you know, is is adopts this sort of logic of Rizzonti more and Rizzonti more relies on the sort of fact that um, one's basically one's identity becomes so uh, wound up in not having what you think other people have, but actually. What this kind of theory originally shows, because of its focus on desire, is that nobody um, 
in a transcendent sense, has anything that we should be able to be resentful of, but they have something very often that we materially need. And when you can get over the resentiment, you can actually mobilize maybe something more healthy, like basic resentment or basic knowledge that people are holding um, resources that would otherwise benefit the many, um, because you stop seeing the promise that uh, you could be fulfilled by, you could be the one who is fulfilled by the spoils of capitalism, um, but that actually it's more beneficial to sort of like basically share it out. Um, see if there's any other interesting bits. Um, you know, so, so there's basically this problem of recognition in, cap in liberalism um, that she talks about. And I do think that recognition is a really, really key factor in all of this and a key factor in the issues with um, liberalism. I gave, just gave a talk about like how social media is really bad in terms of recognition, how it doesn't provide the recognition that we need. We um, exist in the eyes of others. So recognition, the sort of intersubjectivity that makes us who we are, we become ourselves through a dialogue with other speaking subjects who are capable of thought and discernment. But these people are only capable of thought and discernment if we acknowledge that they are castrated and divided beings. If they're not castrated and divided, they aren't capable of thinking and speaking. Like you can only think and speak if you have gone through the second birth into language and are kind of like reduced to the level of the human and share this thing that we all don't share. What liberalism does and this reification of identity is it says that there is um, a one-to-one -one connection between either like a commoditized person, so somebody who um, is like a whole and complete subject that we aspire to be, or that they have something that we they might be able to teach us or that we want, or that they are sort of this identity, this person who is what they say they are. So they are ADHD, they are autism, they are gay or whatever. When actually in reality, like these things are a symptom of the fact that they, like every other speaking subject, is not them are not themselves. Um, so as soon as like the the whole like nexus of the society around us is turned into sort of a commodity identity, they become a subject that's not divided, and therefore this whole process of recognition doesn't happen. So therefore our own identity becomes weaker and weaker and weaker, and therefore we start to reach out and grasp for identity as a commodity. When actually the whole point is that there is no identity that will ever fulfill us. Um, yeah, so I and I'll just this this last thing I want to talk about is the I and the we. So um she talks about how the I must remain unpoliticized. I mean, the I, the focus on the I is precisely what is not political. What is political is the we, is the fact that there is something that we all share, which is desire, which is a result of us being a, a divided subject. And politics is the tarrying with the fact that everybody desires in a different way. And this is the we. And as soon as you lock down like the I. Um, I desire in a special way. In my exceptional case, magically, A does equal A and the rules of language in the universe don't exist. And suddenly the, 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 the capacity for politics ceases. And um, this logic of believing that A equals A, that there is a promise in fulfillment is the logic of capitalism. And so she talks about we have to um, like retain focus on the we. If democracy is possible, there's Ernest Lacau, um, it is because the universal does not have any necessary body, any necessary content. The universal is like a no thing that marks everybody. All right. Let's hear what Nina thinks. 
Yeah, it was interesting to return to this essay. I have read Wendy Brown from this period before. Um, and I was saying to both Helen and Benjamin before we came on that, you know, when I went to work, to Warwick uh, at 97, this was the state of the discourse <laughs> around identity. You know, there was it, it like we were just discussing the fact that there was a kind of all of this. And Helen mentioned this has been done before. You know, all of these critiques have existed for many years. You know, we had a rehearsal of the current culture war in a pre-internet world. Um, through academia, where there was this kind of critique of identity politics, this concern about universalism versus particularism, uh, you know, how to keep open difference and pluralism uh, to avoid the collapse into the narcissistic eye. Um, how do we keep open the relation to the other? People were using lots of Levinas, for example. Um, obviously, the... the um, Concern with difference in people like Derrida and Deleuze. We can see the use of Nietzsche, which was very much being done by the left uh, French thinkers um, from this period. You know, and I think Wendy Brown is quite correct to point out uh, how uh, Foucault and Deleuze and others actually deliberately miss out bits of Nietzsche because they absolutely have to, <laughs> because Nietzsche is not a left wing thinker. Let's be clear. Uh, and there are many things in Nietzsche that don't support um, what Brown and others and, and even, you know, Deleuze and Foucault wanted to take from him. And I have no problem with with people taking up particular concepts and doing something interesting. You know, there was a lot of really vibrant work. And But I was thinking recently that actually what was happening in the 90s was almost like a pre-sentiment. Like people, I think, knew what was coming down the pipeline. Um, and they were desperately trying to keep open these possibilities for freedom, for becoming, uh, for not being pinned down in the bureaucratic identitarian way. Uh, and as I think is clear, that didn't really work. <laughs> Unfortunately, these philosophers did not manage to keep open these possibilities. And, and we have, in fact, collapsed awfully uh, into the worst excesses of uh, this combination of bureaucratization, securitization, surveillance, um, policing. You know, obviously, cancel culture is nothing other than a kind of horizontal policing of non-state actors by other non-state actors. You know, I mean, this is like the acephalic Stasi. Let's be clear. One thing that's really interesting reading this essay and going back to this period is how much of a Nazi Wendy Brown sounds compared to today, uh, where, you know, she's obviously Mrs. Judith Butler. You know, she's sort of on the side of everyone's suffering. It's awful. Some people suffer more than others. Blah, blah, blah. You know, she's in a way uh, attaching wounded attachment to uh, to everyone, uh, but not equally, of course, because there is a difference. But listen to a couple of quotes from this essay where Wendy Brown is being very critical of identity politics and the, the bureaucratization and the disciplining effects from a Foucauldian point of view of these categories. So she gives an example of a, um, a city council uh, discussion, right, in her own town. And she's saying, oh, last year, the city council of my town reviewed an ordinance divided and promulgated by a broad coalition of identity based political groups, which aimed to ban discrimination in employment, housing and public accommodations on the basis of, quote, sexual orientation, transsexuality, as it was called then, uh, age, height, weight, personal appearance or lookism, as sometimes people call it, I guess, physical characteristics, race, colour, creed, religion, national origin, ancestry, disability, mar marital status, sex or gender. Right, here you go. This is what Brown says in 93. 
Here is a perfect instance of the universal juridical idea of liberalism and the normalizing principle of disciplinary regimes conjoined and taken up within the discourse of politicized identity. This ordinance, she notes, was variously called, quote, the purple hair ordinance um, or the ugly ordinance. <laughs> Unbelievably funny. Slightly later on, she makes this point in related terms. What do we make of a document that renders as juridical equivalence the denial of employment to an African-American, an obese man and a white middle class youth festooned with tattoos and fuchsia hair? Oh, dear, Wendy Brown. <laughs> uh, against the wall. How dare you? <laughs> anyway, so what's really funny about this, from my point of view, obviously, I found it hilarious. Um, is that Wendy Brown is very clearly making a distinction between identity categories that she sees quite correctly as um, uh, uh, normalizing, bureaucratizing, uh, you know, completely complicit with the logic of not only capital, but with, you know, state logic and everything else. And and she's she's attacking it, you know, and she's saying you can't just say whatever you want about who you are and think that this is this makes you important. Right. Like, you know, this idea that you could uh, make equivalent uh you know the unemployment of an african american man with with someone who has tattoos and a silly hair color um you know and i think people forget or the, you know weren't there in the first place you know identity was like something people laughed at a lot you know when people went on about as an ex you know and that's the logic she mentions that sentence you know um, I am X or as an X, you know, and we hear this all the time as a mother, as a gay person, as a, you know, I don't know, as someone with, with self-diagnosed ADHD, you know, as a, you know, whatever. Like this is the logic of speaking today. Um, she criticizes uh, correctly uh, at the end of the essay, the language of I am, right? The language of I am X which from a psychoanalytic point of view is a psychotic claim, right? To say repeatedly, I am X, right? It's not only narcissistic and insular and destructive of any notion of the social or any non-narcissistic relation to the other. It's also a demand. And we see this in the logic of the demand today. When people say, as an X, you must, what? Validate me. You must recognize me. You must bow down to my every wish. You must go along with what I say I am even though I know that you don't believe that I am X, right? This is cruel. This is unbelievably terrible logic. We could look at it sympathetically and say, this person didn't get enough attention. Maybe they weren't loved enough by their mother. Maybe they were put in daycare, you know, and they've come up with these like really bad coping strategies to try to sort of get affection and attention, right? Maybe they'll never get enough, right? We, you know, Perhaps this is a problem for all of us, right? We're we're divided, broken, damaged subjects. All of us, even the even the best looked after of us, uh, have a hard time. Right? Life is life is suffering. Instead of thinking of this as a collective tragic project, right? Instead of understanding that we have shared pain, you know, we might experience it. Of course, we do in our own way. Some people we might say suffer more than others, although. A lot of people who suffer objectively terrible things often have a much better attitude to life. You know, I remember a boy at my school whose parents were both dead and he was one of the happiest people I've ever met. Everyone felt like hypothetically sorry for him. But actually, in practice, they didn't need to be because he was actually really quite a sorted person. You know, and I think of people I met in my life who've had terrible injuries. There was a boy in my school who had like a 
really fucked up leg from some terrible accident. But again, he was like one of the like, I don't know, funniest, most popular people. He didn't let him let it bother him. And no one responded to him in a sort of pitying way or a way that othered him, actually. You know, he was part of the school. We were all there together. Everyone was in the village. You know, there was a sense of a certain kind of belonging. And I understand that, you know, this is what we've lost, that we have a form of atomization. We have this desperate desire for recognition in the form of I am. And I think Wendy Brown is completely wrong, by the way, to suggest that the way out of this is to replace I am with I want, because that's actually even more regressive. You know, who speaks like I want is the toddler, right? The toddler is the one who says, I want ice cream. I want mum. I want da, 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 right? This is actually like not a solution to the problem of identity at all. And in fact, we could say that today's situation is something like the fusion of the I am with the I want. You know, I am X and I want you to do whatever I tell you to do because I'm oppressed, <laughs> for example. You know, and as many philosophers have pointed out, Judith Schlar, I think, does this beautifully. There is nothing good about the victim. You know, the person who says, I'm a victim, I'm oppressed, right, is often and 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 frequently um, the cruelest person, right? It's it's totally the politics of resentment, potentially. We should not valorise victimhood in and of itself. It's not to say that people don't suffer or that bad things don't happen to people, you know, but actually, ideally, what we want is for people to not feel like they are victims, to get them help, to, to stop being a victim, you know, and that the logic, the idea that somehow if somebody is a victim, then they can say whatever they want and they get people to do whatever they want. It's just a recipe for tyranny. You know, when we have groups that are running around saying that they're being genocided, despite the fact that there's no evidence for this, this is like stage six in cult mentality. This is extremely dangerous. When you have groups of people claiming that they're being persecuted and genocided when they're not, this gives them carte blanche to behave violently to the, uh, to the rest of the world, right? This is, this is cult logic, right? This happens every time you can see it in like, Jim Jones, um, you know, when he becomes increasingly paranoid uh, and the entire cult basically starts to imagine that they are the victims of external forces, they become preemptively violent, right? Not only against themselves. I mean, obviously, they, they, it culminates in mass suicide ordered by Jim Jones. One of the most horrific things I've ever heard in my life is the recording of the final few minutes um, of that group. Um, it's There's a, some shocking, a very impressive documentary work around um, Jim Jones. But you know, when you create this kind of paranoid cult on the basis of an assumed identity, which is unstable, um, that you're nevertheless demanding other people validate, um, and you're suggesting that you acquire this identity are somehow permanently under siege. Um, this is a, a very, very dangerous siege mentality, um, which can be preemptively violent. And I think we need to actually uh, tone people down. We need to help people to feel less uh, like they are being persecuted. Um, because I think identity logic ends up in persecutory logic um, and that the individual feels as, as, an, as a sort of assumed member of a group that they have taken on this burden of being the victim when they don't need to. Uh, and that's very, very dangerous. So I think this essay is very, very interesting. I agree with Benjamin that the um, conclusion is very unsatisfying, but it's interestingly unsatisfying. Um, like I say, I think that her emphasis on, on desire and the want is uh, never going to work. In fact, we, we live in that world of this, you know, the want, the toddler desire. 
Uh, I think, you know, when she turns against Nietzsche and she's, you know, when she references Nietzsche's idea of active forgetting, which Nietzsche suggests is one of the only ways we can continue, right, so that we don't end up in rumination, we don't end up in kind of guilt, feelings of, you know, regret and so on. He says that, you know, we have to actively forget. Um, She thinks this is cruel. Um, But actually, it occurred to me just to finish that we actually do live in an era of the forgetting of history and its replacement by a completely made up history, which is then invoked to um, justify, again, all kinds of um, supposed oppressions and supposed forms of victimhood um, at the collective level. And it doesn't even really matter that people get the history wrong. If you if you look at the, what was it, the 1619 Project, Hannah Nicole Jones, right? Every historian who looked at that project that was published in the New York Times, I think, or another major paper, um, every historian who works on slavery said, this is bollocks. You know, this is absolute crap, right? But it doesn't matter because it suited an agenda, you know? If you want to repaint the whole of history as some kind of awful mannequin battle between evil white people and everyone else, you know, the 1619 Project is really useful, you know? (laughs) Um, So what we have is the forgetting of history and its replacement by totally ideological non-history purporting to be a backstory um, for the justification of pretty much anything that's actually incredibly sadistic. Um, and fit completely coterminous with the logic of contemporary capital. Um, so I think it's an interesting diagnostic, this essay, and it's good to be, it's good to see Wendy Brown being a Nazi. Uh, I enjoyed that. I, if she wrote this today, she would undoubtedly be, be cancelled. Um, I, I think we should resurrect this and remind everyone that she wrote this just so that we can get Wendy Brown cancelled. I hope too that Judith Butler gets cancelled uh, because she is one of the most treacherous women who ever lived she's betrayed the sisterhood beyond belief uh and i hope that she uh pays <laughs> for her betrayal <laughs> anyway uh, i'm gonna stop it was interesting because like the victim thing is the the person who is a victim is precisely the unidentified you will never know who the victim is because in a system of uh in a system the power will prevent the victim from from being acknowledged. And it's interesting because I've spoken to like lots of people who maybe like embody certain identities and their frustrations in the workplace and how they'll be like brought in as like a representative of their various identities because of this. And I, I do find this in my own career as like, oh, as a woman, you can be like wheeled to the front. But then really the thing that prevents you from, well, aside from the fact that the system that is also slightly a lie that like everybody gets what they want under, you know, in the workplace in capitalism. It's like obviously a massive lie. There's like basically a horrible kind of pyramid scheme where nobody gets the top anyway. And everybody sort of feels resentful and has their own reason to feel resentful. But the point being is it's like you're much more likely. It's not the woman side today that like in the film industry, for instance, makes you the victim. It's the it's the side that's completely not brought out, which is like actually like being a Marxist. So I've had loads of people who sort of fill out certain identities. And the thing that like gets in their way isn't the fact that they're like X, Y, or Z, which is the sort of common trope, oh, I'm oppressed because of this. It's like precisely the opposite. And in fact, you become oppressed more in your your identity. Like the thing that makes, um, you know, a system um, totalitarian and have to scapegoat is the logic of capitalism. And um, so... The critique of that, the Marxist critique, is the reason maybe why some people find employment opportunities more difficult, although employment is just difficult anyway. Um, and it's not the identity, but it's um, 
they'll get their identity will get pandered to and you know deemed victimy or whatever but actually the thing the critique that they as just a normal reasonable thinking person offer which would critique um any kind of like exclusion on the basis of identity uh is the thing that's like actually makes you a victim but you can't say that and that's not really listened to so the point being is like as soon as it's like brought out to the status of like symbolized victim that's not what is you'll never know who the victim is until it's too late basically can we dig into there was a big difference in helen's take on this and nina's take in terms of the position of desire in your two accounts there was a really big difference and yeah. i feel that we have to address it because it will be obvious to the listener that there's a major difference insofar as and, and correct me if i misinterpret in helen's account we are all united by the fact that we have desire we desire differently but desire is you know, really what constitutes us so wendy brown's suggestion is a good suggestion even though there may not be the uh, structures necessary for that suggestion to be adequately taken up Except I'm, all, I'm not on the side of um, the end game of desire. I'm on the side of acknowledging the process of desire. I think the end game of desire is is bollocks, and there's no there there. But yeah, yeah. In <laughs> Nina's account, desire is the thing the toddler does, and being an adult means in some way getting past or moving beyond that. That seems to me to be a quite sharp difference that we have to talk mm. about. Yeah. Okay. But <laughs> the thing is, though, I okay. So, because the way that I would see it is, oh, sorry, I literally just did. What am I talking? You go for it, Nina. Sorry, I'm sorry. No, no, don't be sorry. I, no, I mean, yeah. Let, let me let me be clear. I mean, I I think that you know, of course, we are constituted by desire, but I but I do think that the process of um, maturation and breaking from forms of narcissism is not only recognizing that other people have desires too, right? Which are often at odds with yours, and but they also have good reasons. For you know, and and Helen always says this is this is what politics is, and I completely agree. So politics is in a way the process of or the sort of um, coming to terms with the fact that not everybody gets what they want, and in fact, uh, almost nobody gets what they want. <laughs> but we have to live with some. Uh, or multiple forms of compromise, in fact, because difference is sort of what there is, you know, and Badu makes this point repeatedly, you know, difference is not something to be achieved. Difference is what there is, you know, difference is reality, you know, I, I mean, even in the most basic, you know, uh, generic banal sense, you know, some people are dead and some people are alive, some people are five and some people are 90, you know, that it's, but there's nothing inherently interesting about difference. This is why Badu is different, let's say, from Derrida and others who take the difference argument to to a different, uh, you know, uh, to as far as they can go. And I do have a lot of respect for that project as well. I think at the time, like I say, they saw what was coming down. You know, they were in a very battalion way. They were against homogeneity. They could see this kind of global subject, you know, the kind of surveillance bureau bureaucracy encroaching. Wendy Brown talks about it too, very well in this essay, you know, and also let me be clear. I think this essay is quite good. You know, I'm not, I, I, it's, it's actually depressing to think about how so much theory now is so bad compared to this, you know, this, there's some good thinking on show here. Like, do you know what I mean? Like it's a serious work. She really does outline the problem, very well. And also in terms of these deeper concepts like recognition, she mixes kind of psychoanalysis with philosophy. It's a really thoughtful piece. But so I'm not denying for a second that, that we we have desire, but I think there is a sense in which 
desire makes more sense perhaps when we put ourselves when, when we take ourselves out of the equation to some extent okay and i realize this is not a very psychoanalytic thing to say it's actually more of a almost christian thing to say or a kind of christian ethic ethical thing to say which is almost like how to uh, remove one's ego how to get your your own ego out of the way and if you think about a world in which you're always thinking about other people's desire and how you can be of use and you know that that this actually uh makes people generally feel better like doing things for other people makes you feel better <laughs> about yourself whereas if you're constantly just doing stuff for yourself you tend to feel incredibly depressed um for whatever reason and i think because we're fundamentally social because we're fundamentally actually uh species beings you know we're like we're social beings right and of course this gets we are divided we get divided all the time by class you know we haven't talked enough about the class aspect of this essay as well i think but you know we're constantly cut and and pitched against one another you know alienated from one another in marxist language um and but actually, we we are sort of on the side of each other because we're, and therefore we're on our own side. But but being on our own side, I think, for for a long period of history, um, was secondary. You know, there wasn't this concept of the individual in the way that we have it now. You know, you were part of a family, you were part of a village, you were part of you know. And Benjamin always mentions makes this point very seriously about social role, and you know, in the absence of social role, like. Not just so. So the idea, let's say, of being a husband, right? If, if if your role is to be a husband, then we can say there are better and worse ways of being a husband, right? Because it's a social role, and you can make normative claims about what it means to be a good husband and what it means to be a bad husband, right? And we would hope that we'd hold people to those standards. Um, and the same would be true of a, a job, you know, if you're a tailor or a butcher, whatever. Of course, we don't really live in that world. <laughs> we have a world in which people might incidentally be a husband or a father or whatever, but first and foremost, they're an individual. Um, and this is devastating, I think. You know, I, I increasingly think that this individualism, which is purported to be on the side of freedom, is actually, you know, impossible for people to live. They they can't, it's really hard. People can't live without broader, higher meaning. They can't live without social um, meaning and and so symptomatically, this desire for recognition is almost like the apex, last gasp of a, of a acknowledgement that being an individual is impossible. You know, because these these pleas, you know, when you watch these TikTok videos of people sort of desperately wanting to be recognised, but they're throwing themselves out into the world to a really, no matter how many likes and hearts and whatever they might get. It's not what they actually want, you know. And so you see this increasingly upping the ante of the desperation um, to make extreme claims. Oh, I'm this mentally ill. I've, I've got 73 personalities, you know. And it's like, oh, please stop doing this. You know, you are mentally ill, but you're actually socially ill. This is a social sick, uh, sickness. It's not about you, the individual. You know, you're not an individual. You're a symptom, actually, in these moments of a deeper social malaise. Yeah, I, I, I very much agree. I mean, the, the thing is, I mean, I guess I'm kind of generously reading from like a Lacanian perspective what she means by want. Um, yeah, no, no, fair and, enough. And I think that the thing is, is that obviously it's much, if reading it from that kind of like generously theoretical lens, it's not to do with actually achieving the thing. And the thing is, it's like repression isn't mm -hmm. to do with like 
not getting what you want. It's to do with denying the dynamic of your desire. So as you point out, like recognition is so important and we can get like a warm you know, interpersonal nice feeling. Obviously, there's like the, the warm, fuzzy feeling of ideology. And sometimes when you do the warm, fuzzy feeling of giving up and giving ground in terms of your desire on behalf of ideology, because you're really seeking some kind of recognition, it can also be horrible. But the point being is, it's like, yeah, repression is not like, I'm not having sex. It's like, repression is, you can have repression in like, having endless sex. If it's yeah. to do with denying what the dynamic of your desire actually is, which might be not having sex or not having so much sex, <laughs> riding a pony. I don't know. It could be anything. The point, I don't know. The point being is, oh, th- uh, that's... Riding a pony. Really, Helen? <laughs> There's a whole other thing. I mean, I, you know, on Inst- Instagram. So, by the way, what you were pointing out about TikTok, the, the thing that's really sad, and as you say, like this is apex grasp for recognition and how important recognition is, is... um these platforms can't provide it because the other person and the reason why they can't provide it is partly to do with the sustaining of the platform because if you got recognition from instagram you'd stop going on fucking instagram so you have to keep it's like the addiction where you go in the attempt to really assuage it but it just makes it worse and so um and the reason it can't is because it's mediated through the screen. And we re- relate to screen media in a certain way, like the history of cinema, you know, the goddess and goddess, god and goddess sort of 1940s film star Hollywood system figures that we sort of like infer into the image of, of somebody like captured on a camera. Like the image of the person on a camera is not the same as the divided subject we encounter in real life. So we don't see the other as a person. We see them as... um uh, like a multiplied image that's dispersed and multiple people see and is not actually bearing the human characteristics, but rather is this undivided subject. And also it's like the same thing as like the mirror stage. So the mirror stage is like a really important stage for Lacan, um, for the infant where they feel completely disorganized. They don't have a sense of self. And one of the ways that they, they form an ego and they, they get a sense of self is from seeing themselves in the mirror and from somebody saying, look at you, that's you. That thing, which looks organized and looks much more organized mm-hmm. than you feel, that's you. So, Um, the image is always more organized than the actual subject. So when you are putting out this demand for recognition and all you have as an interface are these screen beings who do not seem divided, you can't get recognition because recognition only happens in the eyes of a divided subject who is a speaking subject and a lacking subject. And you're only possible, only capable of the kind of discernment that's necessary for recognition to have value. Because if you're automatically recognized, it doesn't mean that there's been a question of like, am I this or am I not this? You can only have the sense of like coming to the conclusion that you are this if there's a possibility of choosing the fact that you're that or not that, which is to do with discernment, which comes from the fact that this subject can desire and think, which is because they speak, which is because they lack. So it's a real fucking disaster tiktok and instagram and all that shit basically anyway um but the point being is yeah so repression is not to do with not getting what you want it's to do with repression is not knowing what you want so you can have um acknowledging your you desire and then deciding that in the community of people with a multiplicity of desire and using your discernment and physical thinking capacities and negotiation with the world, interfacing with other people's desires, but having the responsibility for your own desire and understanding your own desire, I think is about as good as it gets. But it absolutely yeah. has to do with like, I want this and I get it. And in fact, that's a complete fucking disaster because, I mean, I see this all the time, with like oh, the ultra high net worth person and like 
um, I kind of think that some of these like, you know, new new shows and stuff about rich people like Succession and bloody bloody blah kind of get it right, but they actually also get it wrong because it's like far this kind of universe is far more like crazy making and far more surreal and far more tragic than um than these sort of funny standoffish ha 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 look we're getting a cathartic laugh at this and aren't we so superior because we can see that it's bad rather than actually like doing anything about it. Mm-hmm. And the level of disavowal that goes into this sort of thing is like enormous. But like you know the, the closer you are to getting what you want, the more you realize the impotence of you know the fulfillment of your desire and the more fucking alienating and depressing it is so it's actually like almost worse than not getting what you want but the point is like desire and i guess because i'm kind of reading into this essay that she has some lacan in her is that like there's like a dialectic of desire and um basically as good as it gets in relation to desire is acknowledging that you are arbitrarily marked by a certain form of desire because of the way that you were brought up and the way that you kind of like um came to grapple with the universe and fill in the, the gap of lack with some arbitrary, stupid, toddlerish like formation of desire. Um, and that getting it doesn't fill you because it's just a like a, a fake replacement over the whole of lack. So there's no, you know, it's it's just like a kind of theatrical performance and it's fun and enjoyable and it's what makes life livable, but you can't actually get to the solution. So as good as it gets is like enacting this and acknowledging this. And the thing is, it's like, there's the return of the repressed. So if you don't acknowledge it, your life just gets worse and worse and worse and more miserable. And you get sort of symptoms and illnesses and, you know, all these kinds of ways that you kind of like try to manage the not, the not fulfilling of this arbitrary thing. But I guess I'm generously reading into it is that she's seeing how important desire is, but the desire is not binary. It's dialectic. And that, desire is something that shows that humans are united in their difference and that desire is really to do with the political because it's about the negotiation of everybody's desires. But yeah, I definitely don't see that there is any fulfillment in the fulfillment of desire. Yeah. I think sometimes there is a talking past that happens, uh, not necessarily with us, but just in general, between people who are using the concept of desire as one of the things that you can live your life in pursuit of uh, versus other things. So, for instance, in Platonism, there are those who pursue um, pleasure and gratification, those who pursue honor and status, and those who pursue the good in itself. So if you identify desire just with the pursuit of gratification, and then you frame those other things as alternatives to desire, desire is this narrow thing that is not really what life's about. Uh, If, however, you understand desire as drive in the first instance, and those as three different types of drives, uh, then desire could be uh, could take any of those forms, and all of those things would be able to sit within it. And I think a lot of the time, the word desire, because it's used in lots of different theoretical contexts and settings, produces an unnecessary antagonism between parts of the left, which are interested in desire as this broad overarching thing, and parts of the right, which view desire as one of the competing things that you can live your life in service of or in pursuit of. Interesting. But it's interesting because I, yeah, I, yeah, there's the, um, and the, the liberal capitalist promise, which is that there is a fulfillment in desire, which, yeah. yeah. But I mean, if you read Hegel, it's it's very obviously that the whole nature of desire is that it recurs. 
You know, I mean, you can't like you can't eat the meal to end all meals, for example. <laughs> you know, you, there is no sort of sating desire, which is why when you have a bad habit, like an addiction, uh, desire is a huge problem because basically you've hooked your desire onto something literally, which is really bad for you. You know, and this is like you know, it's death drive, right? I mean, it's very self-destructive. And now we have vast quantities and areas of cities, particularly North America, that are just filled with people who are living their best life and but, following their desire journey. Isn't it, but is it though? Because isn't like, oh, sure. you say addiction is like, might be the return of repressed of desire that people become addicted precisely because they haven't been able to get what they actually want or acknowledge their actual desire. So obviously the addiction in capitalism, you know, to, to food, to alcohol, to drugs, is to do with um, an unmet um, by the material conditions, um, reasonable addressing of the desire at the level of desire. And it's become replaced by this air that's like horrible, like fucking, you know, haunting. Like it, not everybody desires fentanyl. You know, it's like it's, it's yeah. a replacement. You want a meaningful social of, role. Yeah. Capitalism yeah. doesn't give you a meaningful social role. And you get so because you can't get a meaningful social mm -hmm. role, you bury what you really are after. And instead, you get addicted to fentanyl, for instance. Yeah, I, I don't know. My thinking on addiction is goes back and forth, like constantly. Yeah. Um, and I haven't really pinned it down. And I, th I think there's something about it which is very, very slippery. I I want to agree <laughs> with what you're saying to some degree. I think that, that part of addiction is... Uh, a substitute response to the absence of a me of meaning, um, and we can definitely think about that in terms of social role. Or it might be a response to a disappointment or to an extremely stressful situation. Or you know, often this is how people get into addiction. Um, but I I think there is a logic to addiction, which I don't know. It, it has an internal logic as well as an external logic. Mm -hmm. which is partly to do with our capacity to automate ourselves to core and not always in bad ways. Like, because the thing is, it's like in order for us to do anything at all, we have to be able to almost automate ourselves. I Sorry to use machinic language, but what I mean by that is to say something like we are able through the superego or whatever you want to say, however you want to call it, to get ourselves, as it were, to do things, often things we don't necessarily want to do, but we have to do, like lots of banal things, or we've agreed to do something, or we promise to do something, right? And so we can, if you like, become our own boss. And we can also decide to do, like, take up exercise. You know, we can decide, like, to do things that will hopefully, ideally, uh, make us better. Like, we can eat better food. If, if we can afford it, we can you know, run around, we can go outside more often, you know, it doesn't have to be expensive, right? Like not, not everything good for you is fortunately, uh, costly, right? Like you can still go outside for free at the moment. You don't have to pay for air, um, <laughs> just about or sunlight that I'm sure they're going to block out the sun. You, did you know that Bill Gates proposed blocking out the sun? I hate this man. He's so evil. Uh, anyway, um, what was I? But uh, how, how to put it? So, of course, we can make these kind of executive decisions, if you like, right? And of course, we make bad decisions. The Greek, the Greeks talk about this too. Like, why do we decide to do stupid things? What's it called? A crazier, right? Um, where we, we we literally do something that's against that we know is bad for us, 
right? Um, but I think once one has a problem with a particular substance, and pretty much, you know, a lot of people do at a certain point, whatever it is, whether it's booze, whether it's drugs, whether it's food, like you said, whether it's it could be sex, it could be, I don't know, anything. Could even be exercise, right? Anything that becomes pathological. I don't disagree that this is like uh, not the desire that it looks like it is, right? Like I think, you know, it is an absence of something. It's an absence of whatever, warmth, meaning, blah, blah, blah. But addiction itself is is very powerful to the organism, despite the fact that it's destructive of the organism, right? This is why Freud talks about death drive, right? When he's like beyond the pleasure principle, he's like, oh shit, it looks like human beings do loads of things that don't actually, you know, work for them that actually are self-destructive. How do we explain this, right? If we're supposed to persevere on our own being, you know, if we're supposed to do things that are like good and pleasurable, but we end up doing things that are actually blatantly painful, induce suffering, go against what we say we want, blah, blah, blah. How do we explain this? So I think maybe what I'm trying to say is that I think death drive, well, what? okay, maybe it's a question for both of you. If we acknowledge death drive, what kind of desire or is this what desire is this for is it is it for annihilation or oblivion is it a desire for a return to i don't know pre-birth uh, how you know and how then do we understand that desire in relation to the sort of desire that turns up at the end of wendy brown's essay or the desire that helen is talking about where you know it's not about getting what you want but it's about coming to terms with and taking responsibility for the way your desire is constituted, if I've understood you correctly. That's right. I mean, I, to get really Aristotelian about this, we're habit-forming creatures. And some of us are taught a set of habits, and some of us uh, aren't and have to figure them out as we go. And, and that tends to be difficult if we haven't been taught habits to figure them out as you go. And then even if you are taught habits, they're often not quite right for you. We go through periods where we question the habits we were taught as children. We think about, should we really keep those habits in the way that they were taught to us, or should we adjust them in some way? Sometimes after that period of questioning, we just embrace the habits we were taught, but usually we modify them or update them in some way. And if we have virtuous qualities, if we're prudent people, then we update them in ways that improve upon them. But sometimes we make mistakes, either because we uh, lack those qualities. And often, uh, if we lack those qualities, there are reasons we lack them. Uh, or because we are plunged into a particular kind of material situation that makes it very difficult for us to use whatever positive qualities we might otherwise have. And when that happens, we then pick up habits that lock us into uh, forms of behavior that are ultimately destructive to us. I think, you know, very basically, people are habit forming. And that's why when you're a kid, it's so important that your parents teach you habits, because if they don't, you won't know what on earth to do. You have to get to the point where you're, as a teenager or someone in your early 20s, capable of critical thinking so that you can interrogate the habits. And insofar as you take a role in structuring your own life, it's in modifying the habits that were taught to you. But that process of modifying easily goes wrong for people in bad situations with no access to good social roles, with no access to good mentors, with no access to bodies of wisdom that they've been kept away from or prevented from having a chance to uh, play play with. And so for that reason, a lot of the time during that process of, of habit questioning, 
something goes horribly wrong, which is why a lot of parents will try to prevent you from even going to into the habit questioning, because the habit questioning period is such a dangerous period, but it is a necessary period to go through to actually take any kind of role in one's own life of, of deciding what kind of person one's going to be. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, I just wanted to add, I forgot to say before that um, just in a way, very Wendy Brown uh, expanding the uh, regime of bureaucratic categories. I noticed that I, a tweet earlier where the civil members of the civil service in the UK are demanding uh, a BDSM group to be set up to reflect their identity as as BDSM practitioners say, in the civil service. Look, can I just say <laughs> something? But like, this is the thing that's like really silly because I do kind of, I mean, I could obviously i'm not sure of myself but i you know this is the position that i have taken at the moment and i could be wrong but like so for me like sex and sexual fantasy is a symptom of lack like it happens as like a way to to handle part of the way in which we handle you know we obviously have to have sex as like procreating beings but like the 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 like fantasy element the way we handle being lacking divided thinking subjects but like what this stuff about like the essence of sexuality like because it's a result of this lack it, it, there's no totality in it and so how it's got this primacy of identity is just bizarre and it's like it, it completely misses the logic of like why we have sex in the first place so it's like sex rather than being this like overall like first cause of everything it's like it's a symptom of the fact that we lack and fantasy and fundamental fantasy is the way that we manage lack and obviously fundamental fantasy like marks each human subject and like you know if we're lucky maybe we come to like terms with our fundamental fantasy and this helps us like live our life in a more kind of reasonable like way that meets reality where it is um and you know we lessen our own suffering because we know what we kind of like how we're kind of structured but this like that there is an identity in being like into BDSM and that this is something that everybody else should know and know about. And also, by the way, it's really traumatizing for everybody else because it's like sex itself is because it's a symptom of lack. And as we've said, like all of this stuff is a way to paper over the fact that it's so traumatic to acknowledge the reality of what being a human subject is. And we can get there through logic and reason and experience. And actually in getting there, there is something like that can help us have a practical grasp on the, you know, the world we live and the way that we live it. But like, it's really quite, not only is it rude, but it's also like um, traumatizing to other people because they haven't asked for this. Like other people's sexuality is like messy, gross and traumatizing precisely because it has as much power as like Freud says it has. So it's like you can't have it both ways. And it is this really kind of solipsistic thing of like everybody look at and kind of perverse, like everybody look at my way of having sex and also like very against the we and against the social because it's like actually if you understand like psychoanalytically the primacy of sex and how important it is and what a role it plays in terms of the true nature of human subjectivity, Yes, okay, it's not like I don't personally think it's the it's like the be all and end all um as as like a, an act. I think it's part of the whole nexus of being human, but it does point to something horrific. And sex without fantasy is rape, by the way. That's why rape is so traumatic, because it's sex without fantasy, without the fantasy participant of the person who's been having sex with. 
And I also think it's why Me Too is a symptom of like recent 21st century culture and not the 60s. Like it's not necessarily just because like it's possible that these things are said. It's like actually people feel more traumatized because this stuff is so in your face. Um, so we do feel we feel um, violated by a lot of the way that this is misunderstood and mishandled in a really non-emancipatory way and actually doesn't get to the heart of like what the real issue is there. Keep it in the bedrooms. Well, we've hit the hour mark. So for more on sex and for Nina's further responses and reactions to what Helen just said, come and <laughs> join us over there. Uh, and either way, thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.